and welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in health care. Today, we find ourselves in the middle of Women's History Month, and our guests today are Dr. Asele Angel Ajani, who is the director of City College's Women's Studies Program. Um, and in the second half of the show, Asele will be joined by Sharon White Harrigan. So Sharon is the director, uh, the clinical director of Hopper House, which is a transitional shelter for formerly incarcerated women, and she'll be joining the conversation after our half-hour break. Both of these women have spent decades working for criminal justice reform, both globally and here in the United States. And so today's show is going to be a little bit of a combination show where we um, we talk about the work they've been doing in criminal justice reform and exploring the criminal justice system, but looking at that specifically through the lens that both of them use in their work, what's, what is the interaction between uh, women and criminal justice. So let's start by talking about the criminal justice system here in America. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. According to prisonpolicy.org, 2.3 million people are behind bars in America, and this number includes those held in state and federal prison, in juvenile correctional facilities, in local jails, and Indian country jails. Some are also held in military prisons and immigration detention facilities and civil commitment centers and in state psychiatric hospitals. So there is a whole intricate apparatus in this country for detaining people. Um, Every year, 10.6 million people go to jail. Most of these people have not even been convicted. They've just been arrested. Many are in jail because they're too poor to make make bail. Um, One in five incarcerated people, that, that comes down to a figure of 456,000 are held for possession, trafficking, and nonviolent drug offenses. Drug arrests in over-policed communities give residents criminal records, which reduces employment prospects and increases the likelihood of longer sentences for future offenses. Some cases, it separates them from participation in elections. Um, so this is a serious uh, moment in somebody's life. Almost all convictions are the result of plea bargains, where people plead guilty to a lesser offense. And that's often because they cannot afford bail or good legal representation and has nothing to do with whether they're guilty of the crime that they've been uh, accused of. There are another 840,000 people on parole in the United States and a staggering 3.7 million people on probation. Demographically, African Americans make up 40% of the incarcerated population, despite the fact that they represent only 13% of the U.S. population. In addition, rates of incarceration have grown even faster for women than for men. So with that as background, I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Uh, Asele Angel Ajani, into the studio. Um, As I said earlier, she's been working in criminal justice reform for the last two decades. And let me tell you just a little about her. Um, First and most important to us at City College, she is the director of our Women's Studies program. We're very pleased about that. But she's a writer, a scholar, and an activist. She has expertise on global mass incarceration, the African diaspora, and the rights of women. She's written two books. Uh, The first one 
is called Strange Trade, the story of two women who risked everything in the international drug trade. I've got to say, I just purchased and, and, and read a good chunk of this book. This book reads uh, like part narrative, part uh, detective novel, um, and great storytelling throughout the whole thing. So if you are interested in what you hear today, I advise you to pick that book up. We'll mention the name later on in the show one more time. She also has a new book that's coming out called Parasitic States and Penal Colonies, Gender, Migration, and the Carceral World Order. And she's a co-editor with Victoria Stanford in another book called Engaged Observer, Activism, Advocacy, and Anthropology. Over the last 20 years, uh, Dr. Angela Johnny has worked with incarcerated women and men all over the world. She's also worked with refugees and displaced people in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Colombia, Ecuador, Hong Kong, Italy, Spain, and Greece. She, has a research, she was a research fellow at the United Nations Interregional Crime and Justice Institute and the first American researcher to gain entry into Italy's Rebibia Prison, um, which is where she um, interviewed subjects for that first book that I was talking about and wrote more generally about African immigrants detained. Getting to the end of this, folks, uh, but, it, but it, it is a long and distinguished resume. She's a graduate of Stanford University. She has a doctorate in anthropology from that institution. She also holds an MFA in creative writing and teaches a variety of courses here at City College, including the rise of the carceral state in a global context, creative writing, and women of color, feminist theory. Dr. Aseli and Angel, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Boudreau, and President. Mm-hmm. I'm very um, happy to be here today, so thank you. We're really glad to have you here and, 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 and glad also to, to, to have an opportunity to talk both about the work that you do as a researcher mm-hmm. and your position as the Director of Women's Studies at, at City College. So let's start there with the Women's Studies Program. You came here to direct the Women's Studies Program, um, and as I mentioned earlier, this is Women's History Month. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your vision for women's studies at CCNY. So um, I can say that we actually have just altered the name slightly. So it's now Women's and Gender Studies. And I think one of the things that I'll start off with by saying is that um, something I teach my students in the introduction class is that I always want all of us, everyone in this room, everyone outside this room to constantly um, understand, realize that we're all part of this move toward recognizing both how we are part of women's and gender studies, how our lives are impacted by that, and how we have something to say to add to um, equality and justice around the world as it relates to all individuals. So um, having said that, from a director standpoint, Mm -hmm. I have a three-pronged approach to women's and gender studies at CCNY. One of it is, uh, the first is pedagogical, obviously. I'm really very much interested in making sure that our students get adequately, uh, more than adequately trained, uh, just excellently trained in the field of women's and gender studies. The second is um, praxis, um, our activist approach to women's and gender studies more broadly. Um, And then the third is sort of the creative and experiential part of that, too, which for me lends to thinking more broadly about women's and gender studies as a mechanism to think through both our vulnerabilities as humans, our connections and our ties to communities, um, and how we want to relay that information out in the world, whether we are going to do that as scholars, as, as activists, as policymakers, as 
as creatives. Um, I'm, I want to be able to do that in the context of women's and gender studies for all of our students here. So, Can you talk a little bit about um, some examples of the work that, that students are doing in your program that takes them from the classroom out into the world? Sure. So, um, as you know, um, we have um, Women's and Gender Studies partners with the Beyond Identity program. Yes. Um, and so uh, part of what we do there um, as a support, um, I'm teaching right now a class called Activist Practicum. And so what we're trying to do with that class is take some of the Beyond Identity fellows, including also Women's and Gender Studies students, um, really getting them to be in touch with activists in the communities on issues such as uh, gentrification or detention and immigrant detention in particular, or thinking through um, uh, mental health issues, other things. So we bring people in, um, talk to them really specifically around these issues, and our students who are involved in the class. Oops, our students who are involved in the class also um, are are going out into the community to do this kind of work. So that's just one thing that we do. But um, also one of the things that I like to think that we do in women's and gender studies is um, we've opened up the curriculum so that we have people who are from who are from the community who do um, creative work in, out in New York and globally. Um, so we have some fabulous people who teach, who are teaching courses this, this term, for example, who come in and train our students um, to think more broadly about their roles as, as activists, as scholars um, within the context of women's and gender studies. Does that answer your question? Oh, no, it's perfectly mm -hmm. all good. And, and, and it went by a little fast, but we do have this program on campus called the Beyond Identities Program. And, and this is a program designed specifically around uh, the task of developing the voices and the advocacy agendas, especially of young women of color at, at, at CCNY. So it, it's, a, it's a perfect fit for partnership mm -hmm. with our Women and Gender Studies Program. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your writing, the, the work. Um, as, as I said, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of of strange trade, um, and, and but it you've written really over the course of your career about the experiences of of, of women in incarcerated settings and and thinking specifically about what it means to be a woman in that kind of setting. In strange trade, you talk primarily about two such women. One was a was a courier, and and a and a, a someone with a graduate education, and the other one who was um, the head of a, of a, of a cartel, um, mm -hmm. and both of them African women, both of whom you met in the Italian prison. There's a third story woven into the narrative, and that's the story of you and, 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 and your family. And I assume this has something to do with why you chose this topic and probably how you, how you approach it. I mean, I would say one of the, the real hallmarks of your, of your writing is that you really get inside and humanize these these people and understand what's going on in their lives. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what led you to this writing and 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 what led you to write about these characters the way you do. Okay. Um, well, um, I will say that I start off by um, I I was not meant to be um, in school, right? I mean, I was not meant to. Um, graduate to go on to graduate school to to achieve all the things that I um, have achieved primarily because both my parents were incarcerated and um, my father for his entire life and my mother for um, for part of my young life um, 
And so when I got to graduate school, I didn't really know what I wanted to study. And I was told because I was trained in anthropology um, or I had gone to an anthropology program that I couldn't do work in the United States. And I have always had always wanted to do work in prisons in the United States, but it wasn't available to me. Um, and um, later on, I kind of I was working with immigrants in, who were working and living in Italy, and one of my friends was swept up in a drug, in a drug bust, a large, um, a large raid, and um, that search for her then led me to um, realize that there were a tremendous amount of of women women of color, women from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, who were incarcerated, not just in Italy, but across Europe, um, who were not being heard from and who didn't, um, who had no advocacy and no pathways to having um, any advocacy done for them, specifically for them. Um, and because of my background, I was especially interested in, in African women. Um, so I, for me, I'd written before this book, I'd written lots of articles and um, had taken my, you know, had a turn at writing a more straightforward academic book. But I realized in, with teaching is, you know, our students really um, identify with stories that they can be part of um, and see themselves through and in. And sometimes straightforward academic writing doesn't lend to um, that kind of identification. And I think especially here at CCNY, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm learning through all of my courses is that all of us, most of us in, in my classrooms, have at some point um, had some kind of contact with the criminal justice system directly or indirectly, either through family or through friends. And, um, and so for me, it just gives me more of a sense of thinking like, yes, okay, and they can see themselves in these stories and... I, um, that makes me feel good. (laughs) So anyway, um, yeah, I, I think too, um, I think one of the things that I also realized being, um, working at the United Nations was that, um, we just need more stories that humanize women's specific experiences, especially around, um, uh, drug crimes that are being largely around the world being, um, over, over punished, over, over-criminalized. Um, most women who are in prison around the world are there for um, drug crimes, um, so nonviolent offenses, um, very much like it is in the United States. So, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about the specificity of a woman's experience in mm-hmm. prison, what drew you to that, um, and, I, and I am asking that, but it sounds, listening to you now, that in your writing, you don't, or you have trouble maybe separating that experience, the, the, the gendered experience, from the experience of, 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 of these women also being predominantly women of color and women from different places. And I wonder if you could, un, you know, however you want to attack the question, but you are talking about a very, it may be widely shared, but it's a very specific kind of experience of the prison system. Um, I would say yes and no. I mean, I think, so let me, let me back up and say that, um, first and foremost, I approach this question as a child of parents who are incarcerated. And, um, and I think that 
oftentimes really I'm writing for kids who I know experience very similar sort of longings for parental comfort and presence in their lives that um, that I also went through. So, um, and for me, part of writing this book was sort of an act of catharsis to understand um, as much as I wanted to blame my parents for certain absences, there were these broader structural things that they were also trying to live through and trying to reach beyond so that um, that I couldn't understand when I was a kid. And, um, and I also think that... Um, I wanted to be able to show how, you know, some very simple mistakes in somebody's life can just spiral into these larger and larger issues and problems. And when you are already operating from a very limited um, set of choices, um, it's it's not hard to it's it's the, it's a very slippery slope, right? Um, yeah. And I think that that yes, while I'm writing about women of color and immigrant women in particular and black women specifically, um, this is something that we know happens also to white women and, um, and who are now, at least in the United States, um, you know, the fastest growing population of, of women who are being detained, um, where there's been a decrease in, for example, black, black women's uh, incarceration rates. Um, not to suggest that there is anything, you know, there's no justice behind that, if you will. There's people aren't making specific choices, but it has everything to do with the class of, of the ways that, for example, methamphetamine is being criminalized now in certain certain communities, right? right? So, um, yeah. yeah. Does I hope that answers your question. No, it does. It I mean, it 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 does suggest though that, you know, to the extent that so many of these people are people that 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 trip once and keep falling. Mm-hmm. That it has a lot to do with how many, how many traps are there in your immediate vicinity. Um, you've also written a lot about the the specific impact of drug trafficking on women. Earlier, you said that the greatest number of women that are incarcerated are incarcerated in relationship to the drug trade, but to nonviolent crimes. Um, am I right in thinking that there's a special relationship between the the structure of the drug trade and 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 the reason why women somehow seem to be um, caught up in it in greater proportion than, than you know, men? Um, well, I think, hmm, um, I don't want to simplify it too much okay. because I think that every woman has their own set of um, experiences that they bring to, um, you know, uh, these situations that um, kind of shape their... their um, they're being caught up in the criminal in the criminal legal system, but um, I will say that I think um, one of the things that I learned working internationally on this topic was that a majority of women were um, I don't want to say preyed upon, but I don't know what other term to use that might adequately represent this. But we're we're caught up in this in in the trafficking part of the the drug trade because um, because they. Were they were seen as being vulnerable? They, these were women with children, women who had um, no jobs, um, no income, um, and these were people from a very well organized organization um, and family members who said, "Hey, we, you can help us out by doing this." And and there's a, a a broad devaluation of of a woman's life, right? Um, and so if you get caught, you get caught, right? Right. Um, or 
on the flip side, don't get caught because if you get caught, we're going to kill you and your family, which is what happened to one of this woman I wrote about in my book. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about the, I mean, the, the two central figures apart from yourself in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in your book, your, yourself and your family? Um, you know, one, one was a courier, mm-hmm. one was more of a cartel boss. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about sure. these two characters. So um, Mary Johnson, um, so I write about a Liberian woman um, who I met um, when she was incarcerated in Italy. And she actually came from a very prominent political family. Um, in fact, her um, her uncle is a is a senator um, in, in Liberia. Oh. Um, but he was also um, one of the most notorious... Uh, 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 warlords in during the first conflict in the eighties, um, and so she talks about how um, you know she had every she had every privilege, if you will. She went to school. She um, had multiple degrees. She owned a business, um, and then when the war broke out, um, their family um, were they were almost everyone in her family, as a matter of fact, except for her two sons. Um, excuse me, were massacred in an evening and she had no place to go, which then set the course for her to become, she started, she was a refugee and she took to the roads and ended up in Nigeria where she was living as a refugee and also working as a prostitute. Um, and that led her to her boyfriend um, who, and pimp who then basically set her up for um, the currying mm-hmm. A part of um, her experience, and then um, another person that I write about is um, is Pauline, who is um, who was um, one of the largest. Uh, she she ran a very large organization. Um, she was the, if you will, a drug lord, um, the head of an organization that was based out of Italy, working with organized crime, but also working with the government in in various not not the Italian government. I should be clear about that, um, but working with people who were in um, higher high places in in Uganda, um, which is where she's from, and. Um, but this, these were um, international organizations. I mean, she worked out of all over Asia. So mostly she had a base in Thailand. She had a base in Vietnam. She had um, a base in Greece. She had, I mean, she was very well organized in Brazil, et cetera. So um, I write a lot about her. And she was someone who um, was seen as being kind of in everyday domestic life, um, she supported her husband who was going to college. Right. Um, and she was seen as being the mother, even though she had this whole other side to her. Um, and so I I have, yeah, so I, I write also about Pauline. Yeah, so. you, you, you come at Pauline and, and, and the early description is you know, she's a mother, she's a wife, and she's the head of a drug cartel, which mm-hmm. is which is jarring. They exist really in, in you know, totally opposite positioning. You, know, you have Mary who kind of conforms to this idea or you know, the story of somebody who vulnerability leads to vulnerability and you just lose a hold of, of security and are drawn into something that you maybe never would have chosen at the beginning. And then you come to Pauline mm-hmm. and the work she did in the drug trade was really a move to power. Yeah. And, and are they, when you find them in prison... How different are they? 
Um, well, as as people, very different. Yeah. But I think in terms of understanding, um, how should I say this? Mary also understood her own particular power, which came from her position in her society. Right. Um, um, but I think for me it was really important because I, in in working with other women also incarcerated in the United States, I think that some things that we forget sometimes is that women who are incarcerated are not just victims of circumstances. Sometimes, um, you know, we we have limited choices, but but um, choices nonetheless, and that's important too. And so I really wanted to be able to reflect on agency. Um, for both of these women in different ways. So, okay. Joining our conversation with Dr. Sale Angel Ajani is Sharon White Harrigan. And folks, i got to tell you, buckle your seatbelts because we have another long resume, but um, that's because we got such great guests on this show. Um, Sharon is the clinical director of the Women's Prison Association, or the WPA, which is a transitional shelter for women called Hopper House. Um, um, White Harrigan has worked in the criminal justice, domestic violence, mental health, and substance abuse fields, and she's an advocate and activist worldwide. She's also an alumna of Reconnect, and that's an advocacy group for women as well as WPA's Women Advocacy Pro- uh, Project. Um, Sharon sits on the advisory board of the Women's Building under the Novo Foundation, and that foundation works to foster a transformation from world domination and exploitation to one of collaboration and partnership. Ms. White Harrigan is also involved with various other organizations like Women in Justice Project, and that you'll hear that called WJP, College and Community Fellowship, the College Initiative, Fortune Society, and Correctional Association. She's a motivational speaker and has presented nationwide on prison reform and domestic violence, and she's also been featured in the New York Times and the Daily News. Ms. White Harrigan holds an Associates in Arts, a bachelor's degree in social work and criminal justice from the Graduate Center of the City University, City University of New York, where she was, uh, where she is, was a Thomas W. Smith Fellow. She has a master's degree in social work from Lehman College. So you're you're CUNY through and through, aren't yes. you? That's fantastic. <laughs> um, and well, let me just say, welcome to from City to the World, Sharon White Harrigan. Well, thank you. I'm very honored to be here with such greatness. <laughs> well, we're pleased to have you, and um, we're here to talk about uh, women in prison reform, but also to to mark Women's History Month. So it's great to have uh, two powerful women on the show to 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 mark that. Could you let's start by just having you tell us a little bit about your your work as the clinical director at Hopper House and and how you got involved in that project. Well, I I got involved. I started out, um, I was incarcerated for 11 years in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Um, I was sentenced to 9 to 18 years. Um, A man attempted to rape me, and I fought for my life. And so while I was there, WPA, the Women's Prison Association, had a program called Women Care. Mm -hmm. And so they were coming inside of Bedford, and... I wind up going to their workshop, and it's women's women's care is a mentorship program, and so I was linked with a mentor, and thus began my journey um, with WPA. And when I came home, I was just still, you know, linked to them in various ways and and doing their programs. And um, about three and a half years ago, I received an email to come work 
at Hopper Home. Mm-hmm. Um, they asked me to be the program director, so I was the program director for all of this time, and I just recently transitioned over um, a very nice young lady, um, capable woman, Tiffany Hallett, now is the program director, and I took on a clinical because that's what I went to school for. I'm paying student loans for <laughs> okay. to be a social worker, <laughs> yep. and so that's that's my that's my forte, you know, to work with women who are uh, traumatized, who has traumatic backgrounds and experiences, and that is the greatest need right now. So I am where I should be. Uh-huh. And Hopper House is, is dedicated to addressing those And needs. Hopper House is comprised of 38 women. A majority of them are formerly incarcerated. They come out of the prison system. Um, unfortunately, they're homeless um, for the most part. And so they go through an assessment shelter, and then they are sent to Hopper Home. And there they receive wraparound services. Of course, the ultimate goal is housing. But my part is to provide the clinical because, you know, I believe housing is um, homelessness is a state of not just a state of mind, but a state of being. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to address all of those things that first uh, brought the women to prison and also keep them homeless, keep them stagnated in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk a lot about the the incarceration crisis in the United States. We often we often talk about men, we often talk about African American and Latino men, but we heard earlier today on the show that that it, it's the population of incarcerated women that is growing faster than any other incarcerated population in this country. And I wonder if from your vantage point at Hopper House you 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 can explain that or and what do you see in these trends of of, of growing numbers of incarcerations? Women are hurt. They are traumatized. They are uh, broken to a degree. And so they are now, they're the providers. You know, the dynamics have changed. You know, the men are no longer the head of the household. The women are. They are the head of the household. They are the providers, the caregivers. They are going to school. They are going to work. They're doing everything. And so it's a great burden. They're overwhelmed. You know, they're also angry for the things that has happened to them in life, for their experiences that has never been addressed, you know, because we have to, you know, be strong for our children. We have to be strong for the family. And so it goes untreated. And so, you know, um, the women as a whole, you know, we just have this, this way of needing to take care of everyone else but ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so we find ourselves in different kind of predicaments and situations that then lead us on a course to incarceration. Mm -hmm. Dr. Angela Johnny, you were saying earlier about this this kind of slippery slope to a, in, in, you know, where something happens and you try to fix it and then something else happens and before you know it, somebody who never imagined being in prison is 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 up to the neck in trouble um it sounds like what you're what you're talking about now domino effect Mm -hmm. your current work um centers on incarcerated women but you've also worked extensively in issues of domestic violence and mental health and substance abuse and each of these concerns are tightly 
bound up in the power disparities that exist yes. in, in our society. And, and I, I wonder, um, are, the, are there ways in which patterns of gender inequality outside of prison get replicated inside? Is that, do people carry that with them into the prison system as you see it? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and so let me just say, you know, my husband always say that I'm a man basher, but I'm not. I think that, you know, um, even in prison, you know, the male guards, the, the male workers, you know, they had a way of this lack of disregard, this lack of disrespect, you know, and this is something that happens outside in the community. You know, some cultures consider women second-class citizens, and so it, it, it trickles over, you know, and the men designed the prisons, and they designed it for men. It wasn't built for women, mm -hmm. right? And so when with women in prison, there's this attitude of, oh, well, you shouldn't be here. You know, how dare you leave your children? How dare you leave your family and, and your husband and, and people to fend for themselves? And, and you're here. But, you know, men get a different, they get that respect, even in prison, mm -hmm. you know? And, it, and so it is, is vastly different. The men from the women. Um, and so, yes, it definitely there's this this big power struggle. It's a it's a power and control um, thing that 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 goes on. And it, no matter where, whether it's even in um, substance abuse treatment centers and in, in mental health clinics and in, in psychiatric hospitals and even at, it. No matter where, there is this disparity mm -hmm. between men and women. Yeah. Can, I, can I also add one yeah. thing? When I always tell, um, I'm always talking to my students about these vast programs at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, NYU, Columbia. They have these prison programs. Most of them do not serve women's prisons. And so even from the programming standpoint, women are, um, they're just locked out. Disregarded. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Well, so let me ask both of you, uh, and Sharon, I'll start with you. You're both advocates for prison reform. Yes. And I, so where do we start in unpacking the different needs of, of women in incarcerated settings? First, it starts with respect. Okay. You know, respect the process, right? Respect the fact that we are in the forefront. We always have been, you know, and since the beginning of time, we've always had to fight. We had to fight the vote. We had to, you know, there was always th this fight, and we shouldn't have to, right? We should be in partnership, right? Where there's men, there are women, and where there's women, there are men. When you incarcerate a man, you incarcerate a man now, but when you incarcerate a woman, you incarcerate the family, mm -hmm. you know, so the women are in the forefront. So I think it starts with understanding who we are, not just as people, but as women, what we bring. We're mothers, we're sisters, we're daughters, we're aunts, we're, we're all of this. And, and we're people that are brilliant, that are smart, that are capable, that are creative. And we can do Everything that a man can do, almost, mm -hmm. right? And so we should be at the table the same way. And, I, and that's what it starts with. It, you know, nothing else is going to work unless we are respected mm -hmm. for the women that we are. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so one thing, I'll, I'll say two things. So on the one hand, I, I always say, as, as of late, that the issue of incarceration, mass incarceration, has to be at the forefront of any kind of feminist 
movement, right? Like, because this issue encapsulates absolutely everything from housing to mental health absolutely. to to wellness to to uh, state and, and physical domestic violence. All of it encapsulates all of it. So if we put this issue at the forefront, we will be able to really address and tackle all of these structural problems. On the, on the other hand, we have to think through the question of abolition, which, um, and I don't mean abolition, get away, get do away with all of the, the entire criminal legal system, but abolition to the point of let's dismantle this and see what parts work and what do, what, which parts do not. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and we get into debates. I know a lot about people saying, well, what do you mean? We shouldn't have prisons. We shouldn't have police. Da, da, da. Well, societies have existed without these things. These right. are created by by colonial white supremacist capitalist structures. And these things need, can and should be dismantled yes. so that we can understand um, what works in terms of thinking about punishment and consequences. But what we're doing right now is just. Um, we are, it's genocide. We are killing people mm -hmm. and families and cultures and communities. I want to get back to this question of the construction of, 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 of the, the prison system. And I, 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 I didn't get a chance in the first half to talk about the book that you have coming out, but this is a book that really analyzes, uh, you know, the, con, you know, the construction of the prison system and, and, and why governments have an interest in, 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 in that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you're saying in this book? Um, okay. Uh, well, I'll say briefly that one of the things that I'm looking at is how policies, um, specifically like cross-nation policies and policies with um, uh, big multinational corporations encourage the rise of policing and encourage the rise of, of, um, of prisons, um, and and how and I am looking specifically at how women are caught up in this um, and still disregarded and dehumanized. But how if we take women as the center of our analysis, mm -hmm. we can pull all of this back. Um, that's sort of a brief. I know we don't have a lot of time. It's a really short. Um, it's thing always to say. unfair to ask an author to summarize work <laughs> in a minute. But I wanted to ask that question um, because Ms. White Harrigan, I wanted as I think about the work that you do at Hopper House, you, you're almost person by person. Your job is to kind of dissect, deconstruct, break down the thing that prison has built into a woman's life. And I wonder, mm. you know, is 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 the work that you have? When a woman comes out of prison, the, 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 the spaces you need to rebuild, it's got to be different than when a man comes out of prison. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that at Hopper House and, and what you see more generally? In it? Absolutely. And I, I'll start with myself as an example. I, one of the most important things is, is rebuilding relationships. Right. So coming out, you know, you're away from your family. I did over a decade. There's women now coming out after doing such a long term um, in prison and just getting to know your family again, getting to, you know, we build the family inside. There's this camaraderie, this community. And so just coming out and continuing to build that community. And so, you know, we're nurturers by nature. Yeah. We love to love and we love to take care of people and, you know, have people in our surroundings. And so I think with, you know, with the women coming into Hopper Home, you know, it's important that they have they continue these relationships, you know, they to either reestablish them or to mend them, 
you know, because a lot of relationships get broken. You know, we've, you know, um, they suffered a lot. There's, they've been in relationships that didn't work out. And, you know, the hurt from that, the, the trauma, the domestic abuse and the, the rapes, the molestations, all of these things above. And, and so it's important that, you know, piece by piece, you take them individually and you work on the things that are the barriers. And and one of the biggest barriers is relationships, mm-hmm. is, you know, just mending that that bridge, right? Because it's, you know, not for nothing, coming home from prison, no matter how independent and self-sufficient you are, everyone needs somebody, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So we need people. We need support around us. And yes, we have a community that supports each other, but it's also with the children. We, you know, I, 11 years away from my daughter. And although she might've understood why I went to prison, you know, I had to have that conversation. I'm sorry. I never meant to leave you. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my intention when I had you, you know, I didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, I think I'm going to go to prison today, you know, but it's important that, you know, we start bridging these gaps and, and fostering these relationships. And so that's how I start building capacity with the women at Hopper home is getting them to understand the first love themselves and then understand the people, the important people that play uh, an important part in their lives. Mm-hmm. Do they carry something different than, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious about, you, you, we, we've said this in different ways all through this, this show, that it feels like it's just different for women than it is for men. And, and, you know, what you hear about prison life for men is it's pretty, it can be pretty brutal. And, and, and you just said... You know, women are nurturers, and you build a community. Uh, do, do you feel in ways like that that prison life is different for women in, in ways that are discernible? Oh, absolutely. Um, you, so to be a man, you know, if you go into a visiting room in any male prison, you will find it full of women. Mm-hmm. You know, girlfriends, wives, mothers, sisters— now, go into a visiting room for women, and you'll find it almost empty. Wow. You know? And so, you know, it's one of those things where women are much more loyal. And I say that in a general statement because there are good men out there. So I don't, you know, want to diminish a male's a man's role. But... You know, for women, we we have to fight for our dignity. We have to fight for our respect, you know, every day inside of the prison because you have people that's in overhead, that's in authority, that looks down at us because we are there. You know, forget the fact that, you know, of why we're there, right? Because different stories, different histories and backgrounds. But, you know, we shouldn't have to do time you know, grieve over losses, you know, have to, you know, worry about our children and our family and then fight for respect as well. You know, and it seems as if, and although I didn't do time in a man's, in a male's prison, my husband is formally incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And it seems that men get more respect, 
it, you know, if not from each other, but from the people in authority, then women do, you know. And so we we are we are the burden bearers. And and so if a man came home today and he sat on a park bench looking all buffed out and, and clean, he'll have a place to stay before the night falls. Now let a woman sit on that same bench and guess what? Tomorrow morning she'll still be on that bench mm-hmm. because women are the ones who are now are the, the providers, you know. And so unfortunately, you know, we come home we after a long term and have to get our children, have to take care of our ailing parents if they're still alive. And, you know, we have all of these other things to do. And, and in a man's instant, you know, instance, a woman takes care of the man for the most part, you know. So it's it's always, you know, unequal. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we mentioned in the, in the introduction is all the things – you you are prohibited from doing when you come out of prison. You know, mostly you can't vote. A lot of jobs you can't have. Yes. Some degrees they'll tell you don't even take this degree because you can't practice the profession. Can't get licensed. Mm-hmm. You can't get licensed. Um, are there are, when you think about those obstacles and and the kind of trajectory that you see of the the women coming through Hopper Home? Um, I'm going to ask the same question. Is it different? Is it, is, are there distinctive challenges? And then how do we go about changing these obstacles? Yeah, there definitely is distinctive challenges with the men. You know, um, they come home and, and, of course, they want to go into maintenance positions right. or, you know, things that they are, you know, jobs and, and employment that they already are accustomed to. Women don't. We don't want to be, in, you know, laborious. We don't, you know, we don't want to do that kind of work. And so, yes, it, it, it just seems that as a woman, we constantly have to fight for our place. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm in cosmetology. I have did it for years. I have a certificate. I couldn't get licensed because, you know, I was incarcerated. I come home. I still can't get licensed. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to fight for that. I mean, today I am a licensed social worker, but the battle that the struggle that I had to go through and I I just don't see the men mm-hmm. having to go through that type of struggle. And for the most part, we have different um, aspirations, you know, when we come out of prison. And, and again, I don't want to diminish the men, but the women come home and we're already, we're thinking ahead how we're going to provide for the family, yeah. right? How are we going to not just take care of ourselves and look, look beautiful and how are we going to take care and provide for our families and how can we give back to the community, mm-hmm. whereas a man might come home and, you know, how am I going to get with this girl, you know? Yeah. So there, there is a difference. So we think long term. We don't just think about a job. We, we look for a career, you know? And so, there, yeah, there's definitely mm-hmm. differences. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I want to thank you for listening to From City to the World. I want to give a real special thanks to our two extraordinary guests, uh, Dr. Asele Angel Ajani, who's the director of CCNY's Women's Studies Program, and we are thrilled that she is. 
and Ms. Sharon White Harrigan, who is the clinical director of Hopper House. And as I read earlier, and you heard for the last half hour, a motivational speaker, and man alive is she. Um, this show is produced by my extraordinary producer, Angela Harden, and in a, a, a supporting role, yours truly, Vince Boudreau. Thank you. I'll see you next month. Like what you're hearing? Please make sure to subscribe on your podcast app of choice to From City to the World.